If you have Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I want to thank Tom Schultz for filling in for me last week. Tom, you did a great job. Got to listen to your message. And I always feel, um, you know, it's a, being a pastor, there's a responsibility that comes with, I don't know, filling the pulpit. And so when I'm not here, I always, it feels like, hey, I need to be mindful of that. It's a responsibility that I don't take lightly. And Tom, it's a comfort to me. I mean this seriously, to know that, I can turn to you anytime, and I know that what you share is going to be uh, encouraging, it's going to be life-giving, and it's going to be true to the Word of God. So thank you, brother, for filling in. So we're working our way through John's Gospel, and today we're going to finish up chapter 15. At this rate, in another decade or so, we might actually finish the whole Gospel. <laughs> I mean, but what's the difference? You're going to expect me to preach out of the Word every Sunday anyway. Might as well be John. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Bless your people, Lord. (laughs) All right, so um, I'm going to read verses 18 to 27. You can follow along on the screen. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would probably not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the father, he will testify about me, and you will also testify you have been with me from the beginning. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. Use me today, oh God. I pray to speak your word to your people in a way that's, that's life-giving to them. In Jesus' name. So just a little bit of context. Remember, Jesus is meeting with his closest friends. This is his last meeting with them. And it covers many chapters. Um, chapters uh, 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. He's meeting with his his disciples on that, that final night, the, the night where they, he had the Last Supper. They had that final Passover meal together prior to his arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion. Jesus loves these guys. They've shared life together for three years, almost every day for the past three years. They're close. They're very, very tight. Now, just to give a context to that, Nadine and I have been here for just a little over three years, and we don't get to spend every day with you guys. Imagine if you were with us every day for three straight years. There would be incredibly tight-knit, very close relationship. Jesus loves these guys. They love him. And they're having this night together. With them, he's sharing 
those things that are most important to him. Jesus is telling his disciples important stuff. Like I had just shared before starting this message that we just came back from visiting our daughter. It had been like three and a half years since we had last seen Lisa. And then on, on the final uh, night that we were together, she drove us to uh, the airport uh, in Vancouver. And we went to grab a hotel room because we had early flights the next morning. And so she dropped us off and came up to the room with us. We got settled in. And, and then when she went down to the parking garage, of course I went with her. I went with her to her car. It took us a while to say goodbye. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. We didn't know when we were going to see each other again. I said important things to my daughter in that moment. I told her that I loved her. I told her I was proud of her. I shared something with her that we, I always say to her. I told her, I said, you are the apple. I'm getting choked up. I said, you're the apple in my eye. I love that girl. I didn't know when I was going to see her again. She wasn't sure when she was going to see me again. It had been so long since we were last together. We did not share frivolous information with one another in those moments outside of her car in the hotel parking lot. We shared important things. Jesus is sharing important things with his disciples here. He'd been with them a long time. He told them he's going away. And it was going to be some time until they seen each other again. So Jesus tells the disciples in, in verses 18 and 19, he says, the world hates you. Keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. So <clears throat> when Jesus says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. I have a question. Who's Jesus talking about? Who is the world in this statement in verse 18? When he says, the world, if the world hates you, who's the world? Well, I did a study on the Greek word used here. It's the word cosmos. And it's where we get the, the understanding of the universe or the entire world, the, the inhabitants of the planet Earth. And as I read that, I realized that's too broad of a definition for the context here. Because not the whole world didn't hate Jesus. All the inhabitants of the earth didn't hate him. Many, many people loved him. His disciples loved him. Mary and Martha loved him. His close friend Lazarus that he raised from the dead, Lazarus loved him. So did many other people. We need an additional qualifier to decipher who this term, the world, refers to. So I look back at the text, and Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So the world hated Jesus first. So hate is the qualifier here to understand who the world is referring to. Who hated Jesus? Was it the Samaritan woman at the well, the one who had five husbands and was living with a man now who is not her husband? No, she didn't hate Jesus. She loved him. She loved him so much, she went back to her town, told everybody about him. A whole bunch of them got saved. She didn't hate Jesus. Was it the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Did she hate Jesus? No, she loved him. He, she rescued, he rescued her from being stoned to death. He rescued her that day. She loved Jesus. Was it the woman who anointed him with oil and wiped his feet with her hair? 
Nope, I don't think she hated him either. That was an extravagant gift that she poured out on Jesus that day. That oil was worth a year's wages. The average income on PEI is $60,000 a year. Imagine a $60,000 vial of perfume or oil that she poured out on him. That's a pretty extravagant gift to give to somebody. You don't, you don't hate a person that you give that kind of gift to, right? I think she loved Jesus. Besides the fact when the people uh, who were there gathered at this meeting began to mock her and insult her, Jesus came to her defense. Even when one of the people complaining was one of his own disciples, Jesus defended her. <clears throat> How about the loan shark Matthew and all his sinner friends? Were they the ones who hated Jesus? Right, they were delighted that Jesus would go and hang out with them, have dinner at Matthew's house together. None of these people hated Jesus. <clears throat> who hated Jesus? Well, it was those who were plotting to kill him. <laughs> if you plot to kill somebody, you've got some pretty strong emotions against that person, wouldn't you say? We might, if you're plotting to kill somebody, we might be able to define that in terms of hatred. Who plotted? Who, who hated Jesus? Who hated him with a white, hot, fiery passion? Well, Mark chapter 12, verse 14. I don't have these verses for you. We go right this down. Mark 12, 14. Excuse me, Matthew 12, 14. Mark 3, 6 and John eleven forty five tells us that the ones who plotted to kill Jesus were the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. The sinners, they loved Jesus. They thought he was awesome. They would crowd in to get close to him. It was the religious professionals that hated him. So much so that they were plotting and scheming to have him sentenced to death on trumped up charges based on false accusations. Religious people shouldn't be behaving that way. <clears throat> Matter of fact, if you look at the first nine, if you look at nine of the first ten chapters of John's Gospel, you'll see that Jesus has confrontation after confrontation after confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They hated Jesus. If you go to Matthew 23 and read Jesus' response to them, this is toward the end of Matthew, after he's had all these endless string of confrontations, <laughs> Jesus finally lets the, the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees have it. And this is what he says. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them children of hell. He call, this is Jesus speaking. He calls them blind guides. <laughs> Whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. And I quote, he refers, this is, he's, he's talking to the religious people. Religious professionals. Those who have invested their whole life into this. He calls them, and I quote, you snakes. <laughs> you bro the vipers. Right? Jesus never read the book, you know, how to win friends and influence people. <clears throat> And after that, if you read through Acts of the Apostles, especially chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, you'll see that Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 4. The apostles are persecuted in chapter 5. Stephen is arrested in chapter 6. He's stoned to death in chapter 7. And the church is persecuted and scattered in chapter 8. All of this at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees and their followers. So when you look at the context, when you look at the full body of evidence found in the New Testament of the life of Christ and of the Acts of the Apostles, it's crystal clear that the people who hated Jesus and who hated his followers 
were the religious people, the religious professionals of the day. They hated them. <clears throat> it was the people who had invested a lifetime of energy into a particular religious institutional system. They hated Jesus and his disciples to the point of, of murder. Whew, that's some serious hatred. So when verses 18 and 19 tell us that the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as, its own, <clears throat> as it is. You did not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. It's talking about the world. That's religious people. The followers of Jesus did not belong to their world. Jesus had chosen them. He's chosen us out of that world. And for that reason, they hated him, and sometimes they hate us. Jesus reiterates the point in verse 20. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours. Now, fortunately, for most of us, <clears throat> most of us who live on Prince Edward Island in Canada in the year 2015, we've never experienced true persecution. There are people around the world, even this very day, who are facing actual, true, genuine persecution. But not here on PEI. At least not like Jesus and the apostles experienced persecution. Now, some of us, we've been mocked, we've been judged, we've been ridiculed, we've been gossiped about. But, you know, let's be honest, nobody's plotted our death, at least not to my knowledge at this point. Verse 21 to 25. Jesus says, They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. So maybe the old saying, seeing is believing, isn't quite true after all. Verse 24, Jesus says, as it is, they have seen, and yet they've hated both me and my father. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if you were there to see what they had seen? The sick was healed. There are some parts of scripture where it says everyone was healed. No matter how many people were there. There are some instances where Jesus goes in and he heals one person. Then there are other times the scripture says everyone was healed. I think that would be a pretty amazing thing to see, wouldn't it? The blind would see. The lame would walk. The dead were raised. Food was multiplied. I like food. I think it would have been really cool to be there when thousands of people are fed and basketfuls were collected afterwards. Right? He didn't just give enough when he multiplied the food. He gave more than enough. He gave an abundance. It's his nature to give lavishly. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Lavished on to the point where when everyone has had their full, 12 basketfuls are left over. Because he prayed over a little boy's lunch that day. That's the nature of our God. Multitudes of faith. How cool would it have been 
to be on that hillside and to listen to the Sermon on the Mount right from Jesus' lips. I would have liked to have been there. That would have been very cool. The transfiguration. Jesus walking on water, calming the storms. The resurrection. That would have been awesome to see the risen Christ. His ascension into heaven. Could you imagine if we had seen those things? But it's sobering to realize that Judas saw most all of those things. And still he betrayed Jesus. The Pharisees saw, saw much of this. Not all those things that are listed, listed, but they saw a lot of it. They saw the miracles. And their response was that they plotted to first kill Jesus and, and then to kill his friends. Verse 25 tells us, Jesus says, but this is to fulfill what was written in the law. They hated me without reason. Psalm 30, this, where it comes from in, in the law, in the Old Testament, is from Psalms. Psalms 35, 19, it says, do not let those who gloat over me, who are my enemies without cause, do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. And someone on, Psalm 109.3 says, With words of hatred, they surrounded me. They attacked me without cause. A religious spirit hates without cause and without justification. My friends, listen to me, please. Do not underestimate the power of a religious spirit. Look at what it did to the Pharisees. It, it ate them alive. It caused them to reject and kill the Messiah they'd been waiting for and they'd been praying for. How can we apply that to us? Imagine if we've been praying, you've spent the last 20 years interceding and fasting and praying for revival and then revival comes and you're all upset because it doesn't look the, the way you thought it was going to look. They've been praying for the Messiah. They've been watching and looking for him. They had all scriptures all marked out, what it was going to be like. They got a surprise, didn't they? They did get a surprise. And they rejected the, the very Messiah they've been waiting for. They rejected him and they killed him because God worked in ways that was different than their expectations. Because the way God did the things he did offended them. It's that same religious spirit that divides churches to this day. It's that same spirit that causes people to do ridiculous things like strap bombs to their bodies or to children's bodies and blow people up. It's that same religious spirit that causes people to fly airplanes into buildings all the while thinking they're doing God's work. It's craziness. A religious spirit ultimately leads to madness and to death. A religious spirit is the enemy of freedom. And freedom is one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus has handed the scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61, and this is what he says. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, that's good news. That's good news. We all need God to come into our lives and do good things like that, 
to bring freedom. That's why he came. That's what they were expecting the Messiah to come and do. That's exactly what he did, just differently than they thought he was going to do it. Paul declares it boldly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Old Covenant. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the religious institutional systems of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests. He calls what they did a yoke of slavery and says, don't go back there again. And Paul's speaking with authority because he was one of them. Not only was Paul a Pharisee, he calls himself the chief Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an expert in this stuff. And it took a powerful encounter with God to radically change and transform his life. Paul was traveling around, killing Christians, believing he was doing God's will. That's a religious spirit. So, if you think, hey Tom, you're taking this out of context, that the text says that the world will hate you. And so maybe you're thinking, I think he's missing here. Maybe, maybe what the world means is the unchurched people as opposed to the religious people. Well, I can understand that. You know, when we think the world, we think it's us against the world. It's us who go to church against those who don't go to church, right? They're the evil sinners, and we're the good holy people. Maybe we don't exactly say it that way in the heads, but maybe a little bit, right? And so our enemy is the people who are out in the world, all those evil sinners that were doing trick-and-treating yesterday, or whatever. <laughs> I'm just being sarcastic. But if you think I'm missing it, and that the world means something other than the religious people, if, if you think that the world means the unchurched, well then, let's read on. And if you look at the next chapter, chapter 16 of John, verse 2. Now, for us, the text is broken down into chapter and verses. This is just an ongoing dialogue between Jesus and his friend. In chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus says this to them. He says, they. Who's the they that he's talking about? The ones who hate you. <laughs> They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time will come when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Well, if they're serving God and putting you out of the synagogue, guess what? You're probably a chief priest, a scribe, or a Pharisee. You are a religious professional in that day. It's crystal clear to me. And so study it on your own if you think I'm wrong. But it's crystal clear to me that the world that hated Jesus, that the world that will hate us, it's not those people outside of our churches who are not in them yet. It's some of the religious people inside our churches who are all bound up in the rules and regulation of institutions. The greater problem is inside, not outside. And I'm giving my life to see that change. We're so confused. It's, they are the world that hated Jesus and his disciples. And it's the very same spirit that hates us to this day. But don't lose heart. Jesus has sent us help. He sent us the Holy Spirit. Verses 20, 26 to 27 says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you, will, and you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus promises to send us help, to send us the advocate, and advocate's a helper, to send us the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. 
Other translations refer to the Holy Spirit here as the comforter or the helper or the counselor, the redeemer. The redeemer of the accused. I like that name for the Holy Spirit. The redeemer of the accused. The paraclete. No matter what title you give him, the Holy Spirit is God alive and active and, and within us, living within us. We need, all of us, we need the spirit of truth alive and active inside of us because without him, Without the Holy Spirit, we too will settle for religion instead of relationship. And this is, what I, this is what I'm giving my life to. This is the hill I'm dying on. That religion is not enough. It's all about relationship. It's all about your relationship, your authentic, genuine, real, interactive relationship with God. And after that, our relationships with one another. Without the Holy Spirit, we'll settle for religion. We'll settle for the trappings, the sights, the sounds, the settings. Without substance. We'll settle for information. Without intimacy. See, because religion is all about conformity. It's all about control. And it's all about appearances. Hey, the show must go on. You got to look good no matter what. What will the neighbors think? Right? What will people say? That's religion. Relationship with Jesus, true life of the Spirit within us, that's all about freedom. That's all about love. And it's, it's gloriously unpredictable and messy. <laughs> it is. His ways are not our ways. How many of you guys here could still remember when you first fell in love? Weren't you a little crazy when you first fell in love? Have you ever met a teenager in love? They lose their minds when they fall. I lost my mind. I told Nadine, I got hit with a thunderbolt, man. I was on a man on a mission. I would not be denied. And I just kept chasing her until she let me catch her. That's what it's like to be in love with Jesus. It's a little bit maddening. It's a little bit crazy. It's a messy. Love is messy. Freedom is messy. Oh, religious people, we don't like messy. We want structure and order. We want control. Got to start on time. Got to end on time. Got to have all our boxes filled. I don't think God gives a rip about our boxes. <laughs> My experience is this. And this isn't scientific whatsoever, just my part of the story. In my experience, the quickest way to reveal a religious spirit is to institute change. Change something, change anything. Disrupt conformity and appearances, right? Mess with people's sense of control. <laughs> Disturb their comfort zone. <laughs> Do something other. <laughs> Do something other than what they want, and a religious spirit will manifest. Usually, usually with offense, and with anger, and with self-righteousness. Let me say it again. <laughs> In my experience, the quickest way to reveal a religious spirit is to institute some kind of change. Change something. Change anything. Disrupt conformity and appearances. 
mess with people's sense of control, disturb their comfort zone, do something other than what they want. And a religious spirit will manifest. And usually it's with offense and with anger and with self-righteous indignation. And I tell you what, I've discovered it doesn't even need to be a profound change. It doesn't even need to be a theological change. Probably the most disruptive thing I ever did in a church once was I rearranged the chairs. Holy moly. Well, people have said, I rearranged the chairs. They came in one Sunday morning and two women took me aside and they put their finger on my face and said, we don't like this. We don't like this at all. I was like, all I did was rearrange the furniture. They were furious. I had a teenager come in. I thought, oh, the, the kids, they're, they're flexible. They'll be fine with this. One girl was frantic. She was like, where am I going to sit? I was like, on your bum. I mean, pick a chair. Any chair you want. This disrupted her whole social order. Where, where, where are my friends going to be? Because, you know, my friend Susie always sits over here in this row on that seat. And I always sit right behind her. And, you know, it was amazing. Here's the thing with change. You know, sometimes it's man, man's idea. I, don't, I won't say that I was particularly anointed or inspired prophetically by the Holy Spirit to rearrange the chairs that Sunday. I just thought it would be nice to have chairs different. So sometimes it's man's idea when change comes. Often it's God's idea. If you look at it this way, Jesus himself was the ultimate change agent. He radically messed with the religious order of his day. Radically. He messed up their whole world. They'd spent decades and centuries putting this system in a place. And Jesus comes in and just messes with their thing. He messed with their money, with their income, with how they did their services. He, he brought lots of change. He was, he was hanging out with sinners. Oh, talk about, talk about <laughs> disrupting the social order. Could you imagine how much gossip there was? Do you know what Jesus did today? There was this woman, and you know what woman I'm talking about. She took perfume and poured it over his head. Can you? And then she got down on the floor, and with her hair, her hair, <laughs> she mopped up off his feet the excess oil. This is scandalous. I can't believe. Does Jesus have any idea who this woman is that's touching him? She's unclean, after all. Could you imagine? He messed with their whole thing. Didn't seem to bother him at all. Guess what? He's going to mess with your thing too. He will. He's messed with lots of mine. Sometimes God acts like God. He's allowed to do it. And the same way that Jesus was the ultimate change agent in his, in his day, guess what role and function the Holy Spirit plays today? <laughs> He, he messes with our stuff too. Have mercy, Lord. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah concerning change. When he said in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, he says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Why would it be necessary for God to have a prophet tell us to forget the former things and not dwell on the past? Because we like to hold on to the former things. We, we find comfort in, in the known things from the past. It's our human nature to do so. 
God has to announce he's doing a new thing. And even with that, question if we can perceive it when it's happening. Because sometimes God shows up and he does a new thing. And we think it's the devil. <laughs> we think it's evil. We think it's the flesh. And it's actually God. Now it springs up. Can you not perceive it? And you know what the answer all too often is? Nope. I can't perceive it. I, I've told the story here. This is probably a year ago. I wake up one, one Sunday morning. And I sit up in bed and it's like, it wasn't an audible voice to God, but I recognize when God's speaking to me. And I sit up in bed and the first thing I hear is, seeing I'm, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? And I remember my response to God being that morning is, nope. <laughs> I don't have a clue <laughs> what the new thing is that you're doing. That was my honest answer. He told me he's doing the new thing. He asked me if I could perceive it, and my answer was no. Hey guys, if we're honest, we'll, we'll, he'll do new stuff and we will perceive it. Maybe we catch on. Somehow, later on in the, in the revolution, eventually we get a clue. The philosopher, author Schopenhauer has said, and I agree, he says, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as self-evident. That's worth repeating, isn't it? All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as self-evident. It sounds like the churches I've pastored all the years. Again and again, I've found this to be painfully true. My friends, please, hear this. The enemy of Christianity today is the same as it was in Jesus' day. It's not the liberals or the conservatives. It's not abortion or homosexuality. It's not poverty or war or terrorism. The enemy of Christianity is religion. Religion. Man-made rules and regulations, the traditions of men, religious institutional systems, that's the enemy of Christianity. It's when we choose form over substance, when we choose the settings over the, for the, when, we, when it's settings and the trappings of religion, when we settle for that. It's being too easily satisfied the enemy of Christianity is being too easily satisfied with church services instead of going on to intimacy with God. That's the enemy of Christianity. My hope would be this, that when we gather together and have our church service, is that it inspires you, it challenges you, it gives you hope, it gives you faith to go deeper into your relationship with Him. Because if, if all the time I spend here doesn't result in you having a more intimate relationship with God, then I am failing miserably. Because that's what it's all about. The, the primary reason why Jesus came and the reason why we exist is for relationship with him. That we would love God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls, and all our strengths. That we would love him that way, that we would experience his love. That's the primary reason. And I'm concerned, having done this for so many decades now, that we do everything else but that. Right? We have new worship songs that come out. And I love worship. Right? We have new programs that come out for the children. I think we should do stuff for the kids. We have different church buildings and different ways of doing church on Sunday morning. With buildings, without buildings. 
But somehow we do all this stuff, but we never connect with God. That's what it's all about. Better for you to connect intimately with Him and not have any of those other things. Because they think they become a substitute. I think the enemy is delighted that we would be content with church services and never go on to intimacy with God. That would be awesome. From his perspective. So I believe strongly that the enemy of Christianity today is institutionalized religion. Paul said, said it like this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Get this, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. I am not content to live my life with a form of godliness. I'm not content. I don't care how perfect we do church. I'm not content for the form. I want to be a lover of God. I want the people that I lead, that I have the privilege to lead, to be lovers of God. And I got to tell you this morning, I woke up this morning with this on my heart. God loves you so much. I woke up with this strong sense this morning that he has a passionate, fiery love for you, that he has a longing desire for you to experience that love that he has for you. And I think one of the hurdles, one of the obstacles, is when we're too easily satisfied. When we're too easily satisfied with church and we don't go on to God. Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, make of, make of us a people who are not too easily satisfied. Make of us men and women who are not content with just a formal godliness. I pray, Lord, that we would never become a people who do, love, who do church perfectly, but we never become lovers of God. I would rather the opposite. Lord, let church forever be messy if it means that we could be passionate lovers of you and experience your fiery, passionate love for us. Oh, God, do that. Lord, I pray that you would send the advocate. You'd spend, send the spirit of truth. And that you'd lead us into all truth. Lord, I pray that you'd cover us and that you'd protect us from a religious spirit. Open our eyes to see. Lord, there were, there were men and women who had given their whole lives to a religious system. And they missed you when you showed up. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I am just as susceptible to that as they were. And that's my greatest fear. Oh, God, please, rescue me. Rescue me from the pharisaical tendencies that live inside of me. Rescue me, oh, God. 
Rescue my friends. <coughs> I ask this in Jesus' name. <coughs>